Sorry again for the DVD freezing up, but I promise I didn't make it happen that way. <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to start with some comments on the Matthew passage. I uh, did anybody read the the question of the week in our email newsletter? Checking to make sure you guys actually read those things. I started. I'm going to start varying the content in every one. So you need to be checking them, or you're gonna you're gonna miss out. <laughs> So if you don't get on, write your email and get on the sign up there. Um, the question is about the fathers. Uh, the father spoke audibly to Peter, James, and John, the master's inner circle, and he said, "This is my beloved son." Something to him. <laughs> Listen to him. And what's the Hebrew for that? Shema to him. I saw Ron mouth it to me, so you get the prize. <laughs> um, yeah. So isn't this interesting? What's the greatest commandment that the Master said from the Torah? To Shema, to hear, O Israel. And then, of course, in response to our listening and hearing His voice and developing that relationship with Him as our personal God, we will love Him. And isn't it interesting that the Father says the same thing about the Son? I mean, here's Moshe, who represents what? The Torah. And Eliyahu, who represents what? The Prophets. The Law and the Prophets. It's kind of like this couplet. And they're standing on either side of the Master Himself in glory. And who does the Father say to listen to? That's right. Does that mean we shouldn't listen to Moses and Elijah? The Law and the Prophets? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, Yeshua is the, the Word made flesh. He is the Torah of Moses. He is and the, the, the embodiment of the prophetic writings. So for me anyway though, I think it's a wonderful reminder that as we're, as we're discovering the depths of Torah, as we're really delving into our Hebrew roots, to never forget who's at the center of it all. It's Yeshua. You know, when we read the Torah, our, my heart anyway, is to hear the Master's voice, to hear, you know, Yeshua is the one who gave us the Torah. What, what, what is He saying? How can I get to know Him better in this? And also, how can I follow Him in committed discipleship? which just might involve taking some of God's commandments seriously that we didn't at one point. Could it be? I wanted to share with you guys something really cool about the name of our congregation. And I, I feel kind of silly for neglecting to mention this until, until now. But uh, in Hebrew, the term crown of Messiah is Ateret Mashiach. Can we all say Ateret Mashiach? Great. Now Ateret means a crown, but it's from the verb Atar, which means, guess what? Mike started going like this. I was concerned. He thought maybe I was getting a little loopy or something. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, you're right. It means to go around. It means to surround. Therefore, a teret Mashiach, it does mean crown, but what it means on a deeper level in the Hebrew is that we are a group that are all about the Messiah. When we gather, for instance, to celebrate His redemption and dance, we are gathering in a circle around our Redeemer. Um, even the way we sit right now. We're kind of sitting, gathering around the beam, around the reading of the Word. And uh, I just I just love that picture, that we are a group that is all about the Messiah. We, we gather around Yeshua. And that's the deeper meaning of Ateret Mashiach. And that's also the deeper meaning, I believe, in this passage about Shemaing to the Son, to Yeshua, our Heavenly Bridegroom. That's a great reminder of that. I think if there's one thing that really triggers my heart in this Matthew passage, it's the futuristic element because we are, we are a community that lives with one foot in the past 
like solidly grounded in the history of Israel, in the historical record of the scriptures, and also understanding our church history. And we're also a congregation that lives with one foot in the future. We are looking forward to the Messianic era, the thousand-year reign of Messiah. We were talking about this on Rosh Hodesh. There are going to be some things going on. We're going to be doing some things as God's people in the Messianic era that not all of us have realized. We're going to be celebrating the biblical new month every month. It'll be a, a, a global day of worship. Um, the Sabbath day will become the global day of worship to the creator of the universe. That's going to be interesting. That's what the end of Isaiah states very clearly and literally. But in the meantime, we're like, we have a foot in the past, a foot in the p- future, and we live in the present. So it's, it's an interesting mixture. I think it, you can only pull that off in the Holy Spirit, eh? But there's one verse in this uh, passage about the future that I think is most poignant. It's, Yeshua is talking about Elijah. And he gives this kind of this double take. He said, Elijah came, and he was talking about Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. And then look what he goes on to say in chapter 17, verse 11. He says, Elijah is coming. And what is his job description? What is the mission that he will accomplish? He's going to restore all things. That tells us that before our Messiah returns, there's going to be this Elijah, whether it be the spirit of Elijah, that is a global move of God, whether it be a specific person, I don't know yet. Hopefully it's both. But whatever it is, the main effect of it is a restoration. What what, what has to happen before something is restored? You have to fall away from it before you can be restored to it. What do you have to do before you can find something? Well, you have to lose it. In other words, before Messiah's return, everything that we have lost as Messiah's people is going to be, we're going to be restored to it. And, you know, we've been studying how the early disciples had a real love for the Torah. They incorporated God's commandments from the Old Testament in their lifestyles. And, you know, some people today talk about going back to that as if it were a bad thing. So you can't go back to the old law. You know, you can't go back to all that Jewish stuff. And, you know, and I just think to myself, this is, it's tragic when we think that way. This is not just Jewish stuff. This is God's stuff. This is discipleship stuff. This is all about Messiah. He modeled it for us. And going back in that way is a good thing because we are being restored. We're, we're being brought back to what we lost. I mean, that would be like the prodigal son. You know, he, he goes home to his father. That's a good thing going back to the old father. That's a good thing. We're recovering our heritage in, in the patriarchs and in the ancient promises made to them based on the previous covenants. That's part of our faith. And of course, who's the capstone? Who's the culmination? Who's the center of it all? It's Yeshua. Amen. So that's what really gets me excited. I think the apostles really keyed into the Master's words on this one because you find them parroting him. They're repeating his words in Acts chapter 3, verse... Uh, 21. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, they say, with regards to Messiah, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So here it is, Peter and John talking about the same thing, the restoration of everything that all the prophets in, in the Tanakh spoke about that has to happen, it says, at the period of restoration, before he sends the Messiah. So there's an order here, isn't there? And that's what gives me a really optimistic outlook on the future. We were talking about how some people think, you know, this world is going to hell in a handbasket and it's just going to get worse and darkness is going to take over. And you know what? Things are going to get worse, without a doubt. 
Satan is going to make his last, last-ditch, full-scale attempt on planet Earth, and he's going to lose. But what's going to be happening in the meantime in the camp of God's people? The light is going to be shining brighter and brighter, and we are going to we are going to experience his salvation to the max. And it is something to be excited about. We we are on the winning side. So, um, I I'll share with you kind of a term that I sometimes think about with Yeshua's words. Um, Yeshua sometimes think, says things that are graphic, that are shocking, that are almost violent. I would call them his R-rated words almost. The things that really grab you. And he, he has he has some words like this in chapter 18. He talks about if there's something in our lives that causes us to sin, something that makes us stumble. And of course, the, the contextual understanding here of stumbling is when we break one of God's commandments. When we do something that he said not to do, when we don't do something that he said to do. And of course, we're talking about the whole Bible here, not just the last fifth. That's the context. He says, if there's something in your life that makes you do that, and then he gives a really graphic thing. He says, if it's your eye, gouge your eyeball out of your head. If it's your arm, just chop the arm off. If it's your leg, you know, chop the leg off. Because it's better to go into life, the life of the world to come, being somewhat crippled up or maimed or not, you know, not fully functional, than it is to go to hell forever, is basically what he said. And those are just one of those words that, to me, underscore the seriousness of staying right with God and living right with Him every day. And uh, looking at our lives and asking ourselves, is there anything that's causing me repetitively to sin? You know, maybe I need to cancel my 500 channel TV satellite subscription or whatever. I mean, I don't know. It could be different for each one of us. But, you know, maybe there's an unhealthy relationship that's just const- constantly causing me to fall back into old patterns. Maybe I need to to cut that relationship off. I mean, it could be different for each one of us. Only the Holy Spirit can speak to us about that, eh? But for me, anyway, that's just a... Hmm? Even be relative. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there could be so many things, couldn't there be? So that's that to me is a, just a great challenge in that area. Um, I'm going to share with you a little Hebrew goodie from chapter 18, verse 14 of the book of Matthew. Uh, Yeshua is talking, and of course, this is Yeshua is a Jewish rabbi who reads the Torah in his Hebrew his whole life, who prays in Hebrew, who thinks in Hebrew. So when we tap into the Hebrew, we, we can understand it more deeply. He says, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That, that's a verse about Prince Albert. There are lots of, quote, these little ones in Prince Albert. And the father doesn't want to see any of them lost. And uh, what's, the, what's the Hebrew word there for will? Any of you who know some Hebrew, you want to take a guess? Ratzon, that's correct. Ratzon is translated as will. It's also the word for desire. Did any, any of you see the Martin Luther uh, movie? came out several years ago, they actually have a scene in this where he's wrestling over the Greek of this passage. Because even in the Greek, it's not, it's not so much will in the sense of, I coldly and sovereignly will happen. It's, it's a very, like, it's a passionate word. It's from the depths of your heart. And it's that way in Hebrew too. It's ratzon. It's not the ratzon of your father. There's a verb behind this noun for will or desire. Do you know what it is? I'm going to try and do it, and it might be a little hard with the Toledo. I have to start over here. This is Ratzon in Hebrew. That's Ratzon. It, it, the root is rot. I'm rotting right now. I'm rotting. I'm running. So what is what is Ratzon? What is will or desire? It's what you run after. So if you want to look at someone and what, what they most truly desire, look at what they're running after in life. 
Can you think of any parables about someone who was lost and when he came home someone ran to meet him? Someone rotted to meet him? That's the word. So all these parables, they're related in Hebrew. The father rotting, running to meet the son, and the, the father not willing that anyone, not rotting, not, not desiring that anyone should be lost. I just love that about him. And I, I don't know, I, I know for me personally, like, I want to feel that more deeply. Sometimes I, I struggle with thinking of God as cold and impersonal and sovereign and kind of out there, and, you know, he's kind of unfazed by the things that happen in our little human lives, but I, I wrestle with that, and I know that's not true. And so verses like this really, they really touch me. That we have a Father who runs to meet us. That we have a Father who, who desires that we be found and that we come home. really love that. Um, okay, here's something really cool about the Torah readings. Very often, and this has been observed for hundreds of years by the Jewish community, significant international events will happen on a Torah reading and they dovetail. This is like, I could quote a lot of examples through history. And, and that's another reason why I think it's cool to be reading the Torah, to be syncing with the weekly portions. And uh, we had an international event happen in Calgary last Sunday. The riders lost. <laughs> okay, maybe that's not an international event. But I, I couldn't help but, uh, I couldn't help but think, I wonder if there's any themes from the riders game in this week's por- portion. <laughs> And I found two. So I'll share them with you. One of them, I'm going to read you a short article from CBC where one of the, one of the writers is, is talking about that. And, um, maybe, maybe it'll, 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 it'll give us an insight into, uh, the master's directives about a specific procedure that we can take in relationships. So, uh, here, here's a little article from CBC. Writers clean out lockers, refuse to lay blame. This was from last Wednesday. If the Saskatchewan Rough Riders have their way, the name of the 13th man on the field during a stunning Grey Cup loss will forever remain a mystery. The Riders quietly packed up their lockers Tuesday at Mosaic Stadium and at the same time kept mum about the identity of the extra man on the field that led to a Saskatchewan penalty in the dying seconds of Sunday's game. The penalty gave the Montreal Alouettes a second chance to kick for the game-winning field goal and a 28-27 win. Here's the quote. I don't think anybody should should out anybody as the 13th man, said veteran rider defensive back Eddie Davis. It happened. So what? It's done. It's over. Guys are disappointed about it and everything, but I don't think one person should be pointed out for that. Here, here's, the, here's the kicker. It's a team game. And we win as a team, we lose as a team. I wonder if there's a lesson in there for us. It's a team game. And we, we win as a team, we lose as a team. I thought that was so cool that these guys, they felt such camaraderie and such teamwork that if one of them made a mistake, if one of them was out on the team, they were going to watch his back. They weren't even going to say who it was. I wonder if that tells us something about teamwork in the kingdom too. And I wonder if that isn't the attitude behind uh, Yeshua's words in chapter 18, verse 15, where he says what to do if you see a brother or a sister sinning, erring, making a mistake, uh, committing a misdemeanor, acting in an annoying way, maybe being less spiritual than us or something. Messing up your game. Yeah, right. This is interesting. In chapter 18, verse 15, he gives a really clear procedure for us as a team. He says, if your brother sins, what do you do? Well, what you do is you get on the phone and you go talk to one of your friends about it. Hopefully someone close to them too. 
And then maybe that person will like talk to someone else. And then maybe eventually, three or four layers down, someone will talk to the guy. Or maybe we'll just exclude him because I hate his guts anyway. Is that, yeah. did, is that what the master said? <laughs> no, that's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> no, is that what the master said? Unfortunately, that's the way the world do, does things. And there are times when the ways of the world creep into our relationships as a community of Messiah's disciples too. Here's what we're to do. Firstly, recognize that if someone believes in Yeshua the Messiah, they have the same Father in Heaven as you, you're in the same family, and you're related. That person, so first thing to acknowledge is, this person is my brother. This person is my sister. I do have a connection with this person. I can't just cut them off and write them out of my life and go on like normal, because we are family. That's the first thing to acknowledge. What's the second thing? You go to that person. Do you go jump up in front of everybody and say, I saw you blah, blah, blah last week. Or, I really hate how you did this. Or, you're less spiritual than me and whatever. Do we do that in public? No. What do we do? We uh, we go to the person in private. We call them up and say, could we get together over coffee? Or, you know, I, I just have to share this with you. And, and you come to them in private and you share your concern. You share how you love that person and, and they're doing something that's damaging, that maybe doesn't honor God's name, that whatever. See, the cool thing about doing it Messiah's way is firstly, it builds the relationship instead of tearing it down. Secondly, you're able to go to that person in love and hopefully help them realize that this is not good. And uh, thirdly, it preserves that person's honor. Um, in, in ancient Israel, there was a very strong code of honor. It was, it was a really horrific thing to dishonor someone, to dishonor their name, to speak badly of them when they weren't in the room. And uh, Yeshua is reflecting this value. He says it's a good value. He says we need to live not only for the honor of our God's name, but also to guard each other's honor because God's name is called upon us. And when we uphold each other's honor, then we're upholding the honor of the name of our God also. So well, that's something to remember, isn't it? And uh, I, I like how he finishes. You know, hopefully the person will listen. Hopefully the person will turn around right there and then and things will be resolved. If not, then you need to go to the next level. You take a couple more people with you. I assume they'd function as witnesses. Maybe as like conflict resolution facilitators or something. I'm not sure. And after that, if, if even that doesn't work, then that's when you go public. That's when you take it to the congregation. And after that, what do you treat the person like? A Gentile. I thought that was kind of funny how Yeshua used the term Gentile. That's the classic Jewish usage of the term Gentile, isn't it? I mean, it's just kind of, it kind of goes to show you that Messiah looks at non-Jewish believers as much more than just Gentiles. That's for sure. <laughs> so, I just think, you know, as a new congregation, I want to lay that groundwork. We have a procedure here. I guarantee you, you're probably going to have issues with me at some point. I'm, things about you might bug me too. I don't know. I'm sure that we are going to grade on each other. We're going to see things that we really don't like about each other. We're going to be like, that person is less spiritual than me or more spiritual than me or they're acting, whatever. You know what? That's going to happen. It's guaranteed to happen. If it doesn't, then maybe we have problems. Maybe we're not close enough. Maybe we're not being real. And when it does happen, we know what to do now. And you know, it might not even be bad to pray first thing before we even go to the person, you know? Who knows? As long as you don't make it one of those like, prayer request slash gossip sessions. Oh, you know, I just have this prayer request for this person. And blah, 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 blah. And then you share all the gossip, right? So yeah, oh, and they go, oh, oh, of course, I'll remember to pray for them. And you hang up. And then they call the next person for the prayer request, right? As long as we don't make it that. So. Don't you love how practical Messiah's instructions are? 
I mean, man, he really knows this is people, doesn't he? Okay, the last thing I want to look at from the Matthew passage is Yeshua's words about binding and loosing. This is just a cool thing contextually. Um, Yeshua did talk about how if you want to go and plunder the, you know, if there's a really powerful guy and he's got a lot of weapons and he's got a lot of money in his house and you want to go and steal his money, well, you can't just go in and steal his money or he's going to knock you off. You have to tie him up first. And then you can take his money. That's what Yeshua said. Now, we don't steal, so that doesn't apply to us. But it does apply on a spiritual level because there's this big bad dude that most people call Satan and he does have a lot of people that he's controlling, kind of like how Pharaoh controlled the Israelites in Egypt. And uh, you can't just skip in sometimes and rescue people. Sometimes you have to do kind of a preemptive strike, maybe with prayer and like bind the evil one and all this stuff. So, you know, Yeshua talked about binding the strong man and I, I do think that was a reference to prayer and bind, like blocking spiritual forces and stuff, but that's not what he's talking about here. Contextually, this is a different kind of binding. And I just wanted to touch on that. Um, the Hebrew words here for binding and loosing in chapter 18, verse 18, yes, chapter 18, verse 18, he talks about binding on earth is what will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These words are usually translated in the Jewish world as Binding is translated as forbidding, and loosing on earth is translated as permitting. And uh, they're what we call halachic words. They they relate to like your lifestyle, your application of the Torah, how you do God's word. And these words are used literally thousands of times in Jewish literature from Yeshua's time. So we know that in everybody's minds, when the Master talks about binding and loosing in this context, he's talking about giving the apostles authority to decide halakha, to, uh, to, make, to make judgment decisions. And this is very profound, because who was the Supreme Court in the Second Temple era? It was the Sanhedrin, that's correct, the, the, the 70 elders. And for Yeshua to give the authority for binding and loosing to the Messianic community is very powerful. Because it tells us that even today, Yeshua is our first authority, and hopefully he has people in the Messianic community that we can go to if we have halakhic questions about how we do Torah, you know, um, how we interpret certain passages. You know, hopefully he has people like that. And uh, what, it, what it also means is that, you know, there is a Sanhedrin that's developing, and I believe that they will be useful in, God, in God's end of days purposes, but what it does mean is that all of their decisions aren't necessarily binding on us because they weren't in the Second Temple era. And history unfolds to show this also. The Sanhedrin said, don't preach in the name of Yeshua the Messiah anymore. And the apostles didn't listen. They acted as if they were under higher command. They said, we have to obey God rather than you actually. So you can see that there was at least something of a break with the Sanhedrin, where the Sanhedrin issued rulings that were in accord with the truth of the Gospel, that reflected God's, God's righteousness, then that's good. So all that to say, there are going to be more questions arising in the next probably five years even with regards to what, what, what degree of authority does the Sanhedrin have in our lives? For instance, if they decree that you have to wash your hands and bless God who has commanded us, you to wash your hands before you eat, you're going to have a crisis. Do you listen to that or do you listen to the Master Yeshua who said, essentially stick with the written word? You know, so we're going to have questions like that. This is the passage to refer to, this whole question of binding and loosing, forbidding and permitting. Yeshua entrusted that power to the Messianic community. I'm just kind of getting you guys prepped for that, okay? You'll know what to reference like in the next couple of years if these questions come up. Um, 
Specifically, of course, he gave that to his apostles in this passage also. So, um, also, we can see that in Acts chapter 15, they made a halakhic ruling. They, they loosed something and they bound something. Um, they loosed non-Jewish believers to grow in their observance of Torah, but they don't have to do everything all at once. There was an expectation that they go to the synagogue, they hear the Torah and learn. So they kind of, you could even see that binding and loosing in that decision of theirs. And I can see the wisdom. And yeah, of course, like even then, the uh, traditional Jews would wash their hands before the Gentiles, of course, wouldn't do that. I think there was an expectation that at least the believers would sit down over clean food to eat together so there wouldn't be any of these issues. It's interesting how that's that's still definitely something to, to be sensitive to. Um, oh, we can look at the parasha for a couple of minutes here too. Uh, Genesis chapter 32, verse 3 is where it starts. Um, I love the humor in this portion. Okay, so we're going to like last week, which was 80 years ago, Everybody say 80 years. Last week, or 80 years ago, Isaac is 100 years old. Jacob and Esau are about 40. And Isaac, the 100-year-old man, says, Yo, guys, I don't know if I'm going to make it much longer. I don't know when the day of my death is. So come here and I'll bless you. So they come and, they, and you know, Jacob gets the blessing and Isaac sends him off. And uh, Jacob comes back 20 years later. So Jacob is now 60 years old and Isaac is 120. And they still have another six decades together before Isaac passes away. So, and then of course Jacob would be, uh, whatever, he's like 180, 120 at that point, I guess. So it just goes to show you, you never know when you're gonna go. You just, you might think you're gonna go and you might have another 80 years left. I pray that for all of us in this room. <laughs> Maybe some of us can just pass right into the messianic age and not have to bother with all that, all that inconvenience of, you know, the funeral expenses or whatever. So, that, that's the humor that I love from this parsha. Something, I'll share with you guys two things the father's really been like, just kind of talking to me on a personal level about. And it's kind of scary, because I don't have any of you experienced this. Before something new happens in your life, before God begins doing something in you, he'll often talk to you about it. And then when it begins happening, it'll be like, oh yeah, he was telling me about this, and now it's happening. And maybe it isn't so easy sometimes, you know. I've experienced that. Well, one of the things the father's been really stressing to me in this part, in these last couple of parshas is, Things are not always as they seem. You know, we, reality, ultimate reality, is not necessarily in accordance with outward appearances or what, what looks like it might be going on. And I've just been realizing so much the need to look at the world around us through spiritual eyes, to look at each other with the eyes of Messiah, and uh, certainly, even on a global level, this is the time to have spiritual discernment, to be alert, because things are not as they seem to be. And that's something that I, I've really been thinking about lately. I can't remember the other thing right now, but it'll come to me. <laughs> that first one was so profound. I just have been thinking about that a lot. <laughs> okay, um, isn't this interesting? This uh, exile of Jacob or Israel from the land of Israel is is traditionally viewed in the Jewish world as a picture of what's called the Edomite exile. See, Jacob had to, he was exiled from the land of Israel because Esau hated him. And in 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people viewed Rome as being like Edom. And there's several reasons for that. One really simple one is Rome marched under red banners. What does the name Edom mean? Red. There, there are several other uh, interesting similarities there we don't have time to get into. But just like Jacob was expelled from the land by, by Esau, the Jewish people felt that they were expelled from the land by Rome. Therefore, they called this 2,000-year exile the Edomite exile. 
And uh, there are all of these prophetic dynamics that really play out in a graphic way. And I believe that the Jewish people have have the nail on the head on this one. Um, there are prophecies in Ezekiel chapters 34 to 37 that talk about Esau's eternal hatred for Jacob and how he's going to be judged in the end of days for it because he, did, he, he didn't want the people of Israel to live in the mountains of Israel, which is what the media calls the West Bank. This is very relevant. Uh, the book of Obadiah, the whole book, is about this end of days war that happens between Jacob and Esau. And basically Esau gets cream. No more Esau after that. And God says the reason for the judgment is Esau's eternal hatred and violence against Jacob. Guess what the Hebrew word there for violence is? Hamas. Another interesting connection. So anyway, we read this parsha and we're not just reading about the past. We're reading about the future also. We're talking, we're reading about the end of the Edomite exile when God gathers all the people of Israel, both Jewish and non-Jewish people of Israel, back to the land of Israel. And there's some strategy that we see in this parsha, and I think it's worth having a quick look at. Did Jacob come back to the land of Israel as one camp or as two camps? Two camps. Who is, who is the main mother in the first camp? Leah, that's correct. And who is, who is the main son of Leah? Judah, that's correct. So the first camp that comes back is who? Judah. Leah and Judah. And of course the brothers of Judah also. The second camp that comes after them is who? Who's the main mother? Who's the main mother? Rachel's the main mother. The beloved wife, as it were. And uh, who's the main son of Rachel? Joseph. That's correct. So it's just kind of interesting that in the end of the Edomite exile, with the return of the people of Israel, there are these two camps that come back to the land, strategically. And the first camp is mainly Judah. And the second camp is mainly Joseph. I mean, there's kind of this interesting parallel because, you know, you could kind of look at believers from the nations, non-Jewish believers. They're a lot like Joseph. Joseph looked like an Egyptian. He spoke the Egyptian language. He had a position of high power in government. And you couldn't even tell that he was, quote, Jewish or belonging to the people of Israel. But deep in his heart, he knew who his God was. And he was true to God. And when Judah and his brothers saw Joseph, they didn't even know that they were related. He looked like such a Gentile. And I, I really see that dynamic playing out today. There are a lot of believers from the nations who totally believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they love him. And they are true to him in their hearts. But outside, they kind of look like Gentiles still. And you know, so Judah, I'm just kind of like playing with the metaphor here, right? So Judah looks at, Judah looks at this Joseph guy and he doesn't even know that they're related. But he is. And, they, and they're destined to play the strategic role together in, in, the, in the survival of the world. I wonder if there are any parallels for the future. Could it be that just like Judah has already come home to the land of Israel, the Jewish people, maybe there's still a Joseph figure that's going to come. Maybe Joseph who looks more like a Gentile and talks more like a Gentile, but he's not. He's a son of Israel and he knows it. Maybe he's still going to be coming home to the land of Israel too. This is very speculative, right? But there's, there's definitely, there's a movement in Israel um, amongst the Orthodox Jews that believes that there's still more of the people of Israel that have to come, and a lot of them aren't going to be like halachic Jews, but they are going to be the people of Israel. That is. And of course, like the bottom line is what Paul said to the believers, right? You, through faith in Messiah Yeshua, you're part of the commonwealth of Israel. It's kind of assumed that if you're part of the commonwealth of Israel, you act like it. If that's where your citizenship is, then you'll live according to you know the way the, the nation does stuff. 
And then, of course, you know, we want to reference back to Paul on that. So whatever, like, you know, aside from genetic ancestry, we, we all, everyone in this room are part of God's people Israel, whether we're grafted in or whatever, eh? Hmm. I, I really puzzled over a passage here. It's kind of one of these other things that I've been learning about. When you, when you decide to follow Yeshua, like on a really personal level, and you know, like actually hear what he's saying to you and stuff like that, it can really break paradigms. I don't know if any of you experienced that. It can almost be traumatic sometimes. And it's like, wait a minute, I believe this, but you, this is obviously what the full counsel of God says and what you're illuminating to me, and I'm having a crisis right now, right? And at that point, we can either kind of like leave him out of the picture and follow or what we'd always thought. Or maybe it's time to change our paradigms, eh? But, um, and I, I love how, uh, how Yeshua did that even in like the Matthew passage. You know, Simon Peter walks in after these guys ask him if he pays the temple tax. Yeshua is the first to speak. He says, Simon, who, who pays taxes? Do the citizens of the kingdom or do the children of the king? Well, of course the citizens. Well, you know, we're, we're the children of the king, so we're exempt, but so you don't cause them to stumble. Go out and get catch a fish and there'll be a couple coins in its mouth and pay the tax. I mean, for me anyway, that's one of those passages that really breaks a paradigm for me. It's like this Yeshua guy, he is so out there. He is more than I could ever imagine and I just want to follow him and know him for myself and it's going to be an adventure. Maybe it'll be startling sometimes. <laughs> cool. I like it. Okay, we have one tittle from the Torah in this passage. I want to touch on it before uh, before we wrap up here. We might have to talk about that at Oneg or something. It's in, it's in like, okay, we have this chapter where Dina gets violated and the whole city gets massacred as a result and then they have to run. It's not a very pretty chapter really. And, uh, kind of, it seems like what caused it all in the beginning was immorality. And, uh, at the very end of the chapter, there is an enlarged letter in the Hebrew text. And of course, you're not going to see it in your English Bible, but, uh, it's in chapter, let's have a look here. Chapter 34, verse 13. Chapter 34, verse... Sorry, verse 31. 34, 31. This is the first reference mistake I made so far. I'm doing pretty good today, hey? Okay, and it's an enlarged Zion. It's the seventh letter of the Alphabet. You can see it right here in the picture I took. It's an enlarged Zion. And uh, it's the Hebrew word here is zona, with the enlarged Zion. And that's the word there for a harlot or a prostitute. Now, what's the connection between these? Well, the Hebrew letter Zion means weapon. And the main theme of this, this chapter is the disastrous consequences of immorality, sexual immorality. And so what it tells us here is that immorality is one of the major weapons of the enemy to wreak havoc on the people of God. And... For me, anyway, the enlarged Zion is like this key that explains so much of the satanic onslaught in our culture on biblical sexuality, on like on a government level, on a media level, in the schools, everywhere you go. There is just like this, like there's this attack on the way we were created and designed for marriage and everything else. So for me, anyway, it's just a huge reminder that this is a danger. This is a weapon of the enemy. This is an area to be equipped in and to be alert in. And to watch out for each other, to watch out for our children, and uh, to really stay in, in the light with each other also about issues relating to our sexuality. Because that's an area where the enemy can get you in a very effective means. Um, 
something really personal. God was proud to be called the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. And he's proud to be your God too. You just think about that for a moment. You know, the first altar that Jacob built was called El Elohei Israel, God, the God of Israel. And he is so proud to be God, the God of Mike Botha, God, the God of Sharia Rastalka, you know, God, the God of Colin Johnson. Just think about that for a second. And it says that too in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, he is not ashamed to be called their God. And what's the opposite of being not ashamed? Being proud. He's proud of you. He's proud to be your God. I love that. And uh, I'll give you a little example. We didn't read chapter 36. The whole chapter is one big list of the history of Edom, the descendants of Esau. I thought some of us would have a really fun time reading that one with all those names in there. But uh, that chapter has a really real application. Think about this. It gives this big list of the, the kings who ruled in the country of Edom long before Israel had a king. It says, before Israel had a king. So here, here's the picture. Esau gets to stay in the land. He gets to build his empire. He's very successful. Whereas Jacob goes down to Egypt. He basically, it looks like he fails the mission. He falls under the power of one of the, of the world's superpower of the day. They're slaves. They're brutalized. Their children are murdered. They're working to build a pagan empire. It's awful. Just stop and ask yourself for a moment. Who has the covenant? Who has the promises? Well, it sure looks like Esau does to me. Esau has every appearance of success. Every appearance of God blessing him. But he, he doesn't. I just think, wow, that's a great example of things are not always as they seem. So, you know, if there are times in your life where God isn't matching your expectations, He's going to come through for you. He is faithful to His promises. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, just like Jacob and the people in the, in, 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 uh, in Egypt. Okay. One Hebrew insight from this parsha, and that'll be good. Chapter 35. Verse 11. This is one about us, so I thought you'd enjoy it. Chapter 35, verse 11 says, Elohim also said to him, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply a nation and what? A company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. So this is interesting. What comes from Israel? What is called by the name Israel? Only one nation? A company of nations. This is interesting. This is very interesting. What's the Hebrew word there for company, I wonder? Is that like a corporation or something registered with the government that pays its taxes? Like that kind of business company? International business, man. No? Okay. Uh, what, 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 what do you guys think that word means? Yeah, it's the same word as we read a couple of parishes ago. Last time, Elohim said to him that he would become a kahal amim. He would become a company of peoples. But here he says he will become a kahal goyim. He will become a congregation of nations. And of course that word goyim is also translated as Gentiles sometimes. Wow, that's exciting. Because, uh, yes, uh, Jake, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they did receive the blessing to become a Mlohagoim, the fullness of the Gentiles, which is a, Paul, a word that Paul said had to come into the kingdom before all Israel could be saved. There's some strategy going on here, isn't there? That's very alive today. All that to say, you know, sometimes the Jewish people will say, 
Only the Jewish people are to be called the people of Israel. If you're a Gentile believer, that's good. Just stay a Gentile believer. Stay in your Gentile Christian church. Keep doing the non-biblical stuff. And uh, let's just kind of keep this division going. That's actually a standard approach right now in the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, the two main Messianic Jewish organizations, they say we need to retain Jewish and Gentile status. Uh, there's a different set of rules for us Jews as for you Gentiles. And... Uh, you know, if, you, if you're already going to a Gentile Christian church, don't bother coming to our Messianic synagogues. You know, unfortunately, that's what often is communicated in the Messianic Jewish community. And I think that is a great tragedy because it's, I think it would make Paul really mad, to be honest, because Paul taught something very different than that. He taught a different approach. He, he really stressed the fact that we have a common heritage as children of Abraham, Benin Abraham, that we're all part of the commonwealth of Israel. And I think this verse is very powerful in that regard. The people of Israel aren't just a nation. The people of Israel are a congregation of nations, which could even be translated a congregation of Gentiles. From the very start, that was the plan. And God's plan is materializing today. So I don't know, I thought, maybe we should name the congregation like Kahal Goyim, Congregation of Gentiles. <laughs> no, Congregation of Nations, I don't know. But I just think it's cool that, that like God's kingdom plan is so big. It is so far-reaching. It is so all-inclusive. There is room for everyone. He treats all of his children the same. And uh, and here we are today. And that's what we're experiencing. And that's what we're going to move on, move forward in as a congregation. That's our that's our that's our policy. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.